Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli Arjamandi. Today's episode is part of our 2021 Roadmap series with Helium Inc. CEO, Amir Halim. So what exactly are validators and light hotspots, and why are they so critical to the future of the Helium network? In this episode, we go into deep technical detail to answer those questions and more. Amir, welcome to the show. Hey, Armin. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a long time. You were last with us on July 31st of 2020, and you actually really helped this podcast kickstart two episodes right off the bat with a CEO, I think. You know, people don't mind uh, listening to what you have to say. They quite enjoy it. Yeah, it's just crazy that it was that long ago. Hard to uh, hard to fathom. I guess a few things have happened since we last spoke. Yeah, a couple of things. I'll, I'll give you some stats from, from last time. Last time we spoke, <laughs> there were... Can you want to guess how many hotspots are on the network? When was that July 2020? Yeah. I'm going to say 5,500. 4,400. That's wild. It was also the same week that the uh, the legendary boat came ashore in the United States. <laughs> yes. Where boat, sir? Where boat? And uh, delivered the uh, Helium Gen 1.1 hotspots. I think there was like, what, 10,000 in that batch total? I think so. I mean, I think we, the total that we made was something like 16,000 16, or 17,000 maybe. So that, that sounds about right. And at that time, you guys were making all the hotspots. There were no third-party manufacturers, which to me is the crazy part that in just eight months, gone from waiting for the boat to having at least five onboarded third-party manufacturers and one of them has shipped thousands of units yeah i mean there's things about that transition that i i certainly wish were a little bit smoother um but i also know that if we had continued to to make hotspots we would have ended up in the same spot as everyone else where you know vendors are backed up and the supply chain is screwed and um so, but it's it's awesome like it's it to see the especially the growth in the vendor ecosystem is incredibly exciting. And there's, you know, more vendors coming all the time that we're aware of that, that talk to us and, you know, we direct them to the hip 19 process. So yeah, su super exciting to see that sort of ecosystem grow, you know, grow away from the company, which is, was always the intention. Yeah. And how does it feel for you personally? I mean, you're sort of the captain of this big ship. There's been a ton of growth and a ton of uh, setbacks. Are you feeling the same level of optimism and persistence? you know, stress as you were a year ago? Has it gone up, down? Uh, but more on all counts. Like I feel more stressed than I did a year ago and <clears throat> I'm more optimistic than I, I was a year ago. And um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to do. I mean, I, I, I think the the validation that this model is a good one is is just so important in so many ways because it it now provides like a catalyst for like all of the other things that we always wanted to do, right? Like so, so IoT is obviously a, a big part of of our mission and has always been a big part of what Helium does as a company, but it was never the end for us, right? Like that was always, you know, a, a part of what we wanted to do. And there's still a ton of work to do there, by the way. Like I know everyone's excited about CBRS and 5G and LTE, but you know, my, my view is still that IoT is just this sleep, sleeping beast that just is waiting there and, and needs to be unlocked. And, you know, it takes time for the companies that deploy at scale to get comfortable with what we're doing right it just seems ridiculous on the on the face it's like no way it could possibly work and you know they all have the same sort of what i would consider like entry level questions right like well what about if you know the guy turns like what if his power goes out or what if he moves you, you know and like they they have those kinds of like imagining one hotspot serving like a whole region kind, kind of questions and so there's still work to do there to, to get especially the user side like to understand what we've done or, or what the community has built 
uh, and get comfortable with it. And that's just getting easier every day, right? Like the fact that the network keeps growing and the fact that like the only thing that you have to do to now believe us is go get a LoRaWAN sensor and just go stand outside, right? And, and that, that changes everything. Whereas before it was like, no, we're gonna do it, I promised. You know, now it's, it's more like, no, it's, it's actually there already. And you can just literally like turn on the device. You probably don't even need to go outside, just turn it on and it's probably gonna work. And, and that, that makes everything easier because you're, you're not speculating as much, right? Like you're, you're just making a product available and that that's all these guys want to see. Lots left to do. And you guys have laid it all out here on the 2021 roadmap, which is an absolute beast. It's a uh, multi-page scroll. It's actually a very cool design. Can everyone can uh, go check it out at helium.com slash roadmap. But this is like a very uh, well laid out roadmap with multiple sections and different goals for each quarter. And there's just so, so, so much to cover. Uh, and, you know, roadmap is kind of a funny word in crypto, especially if you've been in the weeds with various DeFi projects. They're usually like these highly ambitious, very nonspecific, ambiguous step-by-step uh, -step graphs with the intention of selling a coin. That's usually what I, when I think crypto roadmap, that's what I think of. And so this is so completely different from that. Uh, it's so specific. It is so not trying to sell you anything. I know it can be really hard to prioritize in a project with as much momentum as Helium uh, and running a company is hard enough. So I'm curious if there are some things on this roadmap that didn't make it. Like, I know it's, it's, it's just as hard to choose the things to do as the things not to do. So, so what's specifically not on this roadmap? It's harder to choose the things not to do, honestly. I mean, that, that's the hard work uh, because then the stuff to do just becomes that much more obvious. But there's, there's so much detail in each one of these things. That I, th I think that's the hard part, right? Like the, the amount of, of work required for like any one of these things is so massive. Um, and some of them are just fixing things that we wish we had done differently at the start, you know, like arguably light hotspots, you know, is, is a thing that I think sometimes people in the community ask, well, like you didn't plan for the growth and it wasn't so much that we didn't plan for it as much as we wanted to try and do something kind of significantly different from the current approach. And that was to make all the hotspots be, be sort of heavy hotspots that were full nodes that could participate in consensus. And so it wasn't so much as we didn't anticipate it, it just didn't work I, I guess right like we we wanted it to be a certain way and we wanted it to be this like entirely entirely decentralized thing and um so there's a lot of you know each one of these these tasks is just a big there's so much wrapped in there for, for, for each one of them and i think we tried to explain our, our thought process a lot for each one stuff that's not on there is a, is an absurd list um but particularly the the other wireless protocol list is uh stuff that we continue to experiment with but isn't really on the roadmap Right, right now. And, and I think part of why is that we, you know, we're trying to create the structure where we're not the roadmap, right? Where, where it is much more of a community sort of created initiative. And, and so for example, looking at FreedomFi, who's sort of driving the CBRS LTE 5G stuff, you know, the roadmap just reflects like work we know we have to do. I, I don't view it as the roadmap for like the Helium network in general, because we're not going to be the only contributor to that. And, and we'd like not to be, not because we're lazy. We just think that, that the ecosystem gets so much bigger. Um, you know, the more people that you get involved. And so awesome to see the Freedom Fight guys get involved deeply because uh, they're a very serious and credible team building a real solution there. Um, so there's a lot of bits like that where, where we are helping third parties kind of understand the code that we wrote and like how this all works and, and you know, the mechanics of it. Um, so that stuff is not really reflected in the roadmap. I don't know that I can even explain all the stuff that we talked about wanting to do that isn't on there just because some of it's so ridiculous and, and it, you know, it's, it, it's just sub substantial in nature and there's just so much to focus on already that it, it's dangerous to even think about it sometimes. Yeah, there, there is so much stuff on here. It kind of feels like everything is included. Although, 
Of course, that can't be the case. I mean, you guys must be hiring engineers like crazy. I mean, not not really. I mean, the, I think the team is interesting in that we, with the exception of me, all have experience working at large companies. You know, I, I think there's some inflection point where you add engineers and the overhead that you gain from adding engineers makes it very, like a very non-linear gain, right? Like, so there's, a, there's the old engineering saying like, you know, nine women can't make a baby in a month. And I, I think that sort of the case, right? Like you add an engineer, you probably get 1.8 X the output. You know, you add two, it's probably like, you know, it's diminishing all the time because of communication overhead, there's management overhead. So I, I like the team being small. We've been hiring a little bit, you know, the, the kind of expertise that we need is extremely hard to find, but both on the, the programming language that we chose to use. But in general, I mean, you know, developing like layer one blockchain things requires a certain level of distributed systems experience and, and knowledge. And that's generally in pretty short supply. Lots of crypto projects are very rich right now. And so the market for, for those people is becoming even more challenging than, than the, you know, Silicon Valley hiring market in general. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're doing okay. I mean, we're, we're constantly trying to add people where it makes sense, but I think we're all cognizant of the fact that like, you know, hiring 10 engineers might, might slow you down at this point. And so we're, we're trying to be, be careful about that, but yeah, it's, it, the, the rate of engineering and development and not just engineering, the rate of everything that the company does is very, very impressive, uh, for the, for the size of the team. So I mostly just try and stay out of everyone's way because they're, they're executing at such a high level that I, I don't have a whole lot to say other than let's stay out. Like, these are the things that we should be focused on and that are important and, and they're executing phenomenally. It's crazy that you guys are building a layer one blockchain and also like the layer one blockchain part is just one section in this really long roadmap. Whereas there are many projects where the layer one blockchain is the entire project, <laughs> not necessarily doing anything on top of it. So, uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's days where I wish that wasn't the case, but, but by the way, I mean, there, there would be something to be said about, you know, I'm a big believer in just like focusing on things that are important or differentiated. And there's certainly an argument to make that, um, you know, Helium could live as a layer two um, solution. The problem is there just isn't anything yet that can do what we do. And, the, the, you know, things are getting closer. Like Solana is awesome and can do a lot of, uh, can, do, can do a lot, but it would require us like re-engineering so much of what we did, not just like mapping, you know, code from one place to another, but completely rethinking how it works because, you know, there's a lot of things that these smart contract blockchains are just not designed to do that we take advantage of. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of the cool and unique things that we do, but it is so much work. And some days I just, I'm just like, I wish we could just focus on like POC or something, right. Or like, you know, light hotspots or something, but you can't really, right. The space is just not, not there yet. Um, it, it will, like it will eventually get there, but there's some stuff that's just inherently difficult to do in these sort of smart contract environments. So I think we're, we're stuck with the layer one for at least the foreseeable future, but you're right in that it's, you know, one thing that we barely talk about in the community is is like the console side, like the actual usage side of this. Like there's a whole like actual product there on the other side for like using the network. And a lot of people don't even get to see that or, or use it or, or know that it exists uh, or, or care to some degree. And some of that's by design, right? Like you, you, want, you wanted it to be this way, uh, but it is a reminder of just like how much stuff we do because there are whole companies that just do that thing, right? Like they just do the LoRaWAN like, you know, dashboard or they're just a layer one blockchain, or they're just a hardware company, you know, whatever it is. And so to do, to do all of the things is, is particularly cha challenging and, and requires very good product management, I would, I would say, is a way of putting it. So speaking of the layer one blockchain, that's a perfect segue to the first item on the roadmap, which is validators. Can you explain the motivation behind validators, why we needed them, and, and what benefits we'll get from uh, having them? Yeah, when we started Helium, like one of the things that we really wanted to try and do was to, to create like 
an unusual consensus system where everyone could participate in, at any time. And I, and I, I think we did that. It's just hard to scale it. It's harder than we thought. You know, the the issues with the peer-to-peer -peer network in particular are are very, very difficult to solve. Like there aren't many peer-to-peer -peer networks this big already, right? Like where there's 25,000 fully interconnected, you know, things all the time. It could probably be done. Like I'm guessing if we spent all of our time focused on it, there might be a way to make it all work, maybe. But you just don't know. Like a lot, like I think a part of the process that I think is, is not well understood is that we, we're inventing stuff a lot, a lot, right? Like there's not a lot of precedent for what we've done. And so it's difficult to estimate time because you, you don't know, like you don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know what you're going to encounter. You don't know whether any of it's going to work. So it's dangerous to go down some of those paths too far because, you know, we could go on a whole peer-to-peer -peer, like expedition and kind of end up back where we are six to nine months later. The real intention behind validators is to just create stability and security for, for the network. Like it, it has always made me extremely nervous that the consensus group in Helium is as small as it is, you know, to have 16 um, hotspots at a time whose public IP addresses are known. That's like dangerous, right? On, on consumer, on consumer connections. And, and our way, our intention to mitigate that was for the consensus group to be really large. We just can't do that. Like the pies that we, we use as the, as the sort of core of the hotspot are just not powerful enough. The networking overhead of connecting a hundred consensus group members and like all of the work that they have to do among each other. Like there's a lot of message passing and a lot of decryption. Um, is just is just extreme. So that that situation never sat well with me or or with anyone. So I think there's a few things that we gain. I mean, one is we get a lot more power in terms of the hardware, and that allows us to do things like make the consensus group bigger. Like I think we we would like it to be at least 50 members, for example. Um, the fact that all of those members will be sitting in data centers with with validator gives us another level of security in the sense that data centers and, and cloud services are generally better protected against denial of service attacks and and have more sophisticated firewalling and generally like consumer connections are just not designed for that or prepared for that. So um, you get that benefit. Uh, I think moving to the the sort of more economically heavy proof of stake model provides another level of security where, you know, to attack the network from an economic point of view just becomes much, much more expensive. You know, you, you start to have to acquire tens of millions of HNT. Um, and that's just hard. You know, it's expensive at, at I know we're not supposed to talk about price, but at today's price, you know, it's prohibitively expensive to acquire, you know, tens of millions of HNT. The circulating supply makes it even harder. Um, so there's a sort of proof of stake economic aspect to the security. And then the other side of it is that you get hotspots to, to do less work, right? Because you can move more heavy lifting into the validators. The hotspots can become dumber and cheaper and consume less bandwidth than they do today. Uh, and so instead of you know using the 15, 20, 30 gigabytes of bandwidth a month that they use now, I would expect that to go below 100 megabytes for, for a given month, could even be less than that. Uh, it means that the hardware required is less, like a Raspberry Pi now becomes orders of magnitude way more power than required to, to, to be a hotspot. And that generally means that the user experience is better. Like you're not going to have syncing. Like that's just not going to be a thing. Like syncing is going to be handled by validators and, and hotspots will just ask validators for things from validators whenever they need them, right? So for example, where do I send a POC receipt? Because they no longer have the ledger, they don't know what to do. So in general, you know, life is going to be improved for users of, of hotspots because the system's just going to be much, much simpler. In my mind, it's a no-brainer thing. Like you get so many benefits out of it. The, the downside is that you you create some some consolidation, right? Like there there aren't going to be 25,000 or 100,000 potential consensus members, right? It's just not, it's just not going to work that way. But given that we don't know how to scale the consensus group to, to an acceptable size, I'm not sure that it matters, right? They're not, they're not really valid options, right? And, and so 
to me, that's the, the, the loss is that, is that the potential for what we, the way that we wanted to build it kind of goes away. But based on what we've seen and based on the sort of concerns that we and everyone else have, I think this is the right thing to do. Um, and it makes it easier, you know, one of the unique things about Helium is that it's onboarding a whole group of, of people that aren't crypto native, right? Like there's all sorts of people that are, are users and making the user experience easy on the hotspot side has become just like such a priority, both from the user experience point of view, but also quite frankly, from a support point of view, syncing problems and ledger drifting and like, you know, we just, no one wants to deal with any of that stuff. And so making it as simple and consumer electronic feeling as possible on the hotspot end. Uh, I think is highly valuable given the kind of audience that that Helium has attracted. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying is reflective of what I've seen and just my experience working with the blockchain. Certainly coordinating all these disparate members creates slowness and it creates issues when maybe a few of the consensus members are not well connected and then the, the chain comes yep. to a halt. And, you know, validators are a proven method of producing blocks, right? That almost every proof of stake blockchain has some sort of cloud hosted uh, set of validators. Yeah, there's still stuff we're doing there that is is uncommon, right? I mean, th there are not that many blockchains where distributed key generation or, or trustless distributed key generation is used. Um, so the process of, you know, the way the consensus group works in the Honey Badger system is, I think, really, really interesting and, and has a lot of long tail benefits. Like, for, for example, um, the consensus group can't really censor transactions, right? So like in Bitcoin, if a miner chooses not to include a transaction in the block, then it doesn't get included. Um, in the Honey Badger system, all the transactions are encrypted and each member of the consensus group just has a, a piece of the private key and they have to like, you know, work together to decrypt every transaction. And so the way those pieces are created is the, is the distributed key generator, right? And so as the new group is presenting itself, they are discussing with each other effectively to create the private key and chop it up into little bits. Um, and no one ever gets to see the full key, right? It is, it is what's so interesting about the, the process. And so it's a very underhood thing that I'm guessing like 99.99% of the, the network user, user doesn't know or care about. But in the end, I think it's going to be valuable because it will, it will make particularly censorship very, very difficult. Censoring any kind of transaction on the network are hard unless you, you have two thirds plus one of the consensus group. And so how that, the key generator works is not, is not well understood, right? Like we implemented it off, off a math paper of some kind. I don't think there are many people that have done the same. And so we are in relatively uncharted territory again there in terms of how that works. And so there's a lot of optimization. There's a lot of like innovation in this part of crypto um, that's very cutting edge. But we have the room at least, you know, with the, with the bigger hardware, like we can get the consensus group to 50, 60 members almost immediately, it looks like. Uh, and then I'm certain that there are implementation improvements that we can roll in that, you know, make that into the hundreds over, over time, but in, improving to like 50 or 60 is a massive, massive improvement over where we are today. The Honey Badger BFT uh, consensus algorithm has been remarkably resilient throughout all the different network conditions, all of the older, slower Raspberry Pis, just every possible thing that can go wrong. I'm really yeah. curious to see what happens when you put this on higher performance hardware. Like how fast do you think this can go? They can go fast. I mean, the, the DKG is going to be the limit in terms of how many members can be in the consensus group, right? Like, because the, the bigger you make that number, the harder the DKG process is and the longer it takes. Um, but if, you know, if we went with 50 odd members, which I think we have running on the test net already today, uh, I, I don't know, I wouldn't be surprised if you could make 10 second blocks pretty, pretty regularly, perhaps, perhaps less, less than that. You know, when we used to play around with this on the test net before we launched, 
you know, I think we had blocks in one or two seconds being being created. And so the transactions themselves are not very heavyweight for someone like validators. So they, they you know, I don't think really move the needle very much. It's just the DKG process that gets really, really expensive as the number of members in, increases. But yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be cool. I mean, the Honey Badger stuff is pretty awesome. You know, I don't think messages or transactions really ever get lost. They may take hours, you know, to like a block might take a few hours sometimes, you know, in the, with the current network setup, but it always gets there. Um, and so it's, a, it's, it's kind of, it's part of why we, we chose it as an algorithm was that it's very sort of asynchronous that way, right? Like as long as the, as long as the message eventually shows up, then, you know, you're, you're sort of okay. And, and it's been a good choice for, for what we do uh, or just, or what the network does just because the, the networking conditions of the consensus group are so varied, right? Like just the very, the different, you know, consumer internet options that people have just sort of create the most unusual blockchain network. And so I think it's worked pretty well. Uh, and with validators, I expect it to work. I expect it to be pretty solid. Like we're not, or at least we're not going to run into the issues that we have today. You know, people on, on slow network connections with relays, you know, that, that kind of those networking problems, I don't think we're going to see. So you dived a little bit into light hotspots there. So let's pull back for a second. Cause I want to make sure that people understand exactly what light hotspots are compared to regular hotspots. And what's the timeline for them? You know, are people's hotspots going to turn into light hotspots? You mentioned a couple of the advantages already. You mentioned that they're going to use less bandwidth. They won't have to sync. But what's the full picture on light hotspots? Yeah, so today every hotspot um, has to sort of synchronize with the blockchain, right? Like it has to download all the blocks. It has to have all the transactions. That's sort of how a lot of the system works, right? Like so when proof of coverage challenges are created or received, hotspots know what to do with that information because they have the full blockchain at hand, right? Like they, they've downloaded all of the blocks and the transactions. And so they know who the challenger was, for example, they know where to send receipts. Um, you know, they, they know everything, right? They know everything. They know as much as anyone else on the network does because they have the whole blockchain. The downside of that is that to acquire the whole blockchain requires a lot of bandwidth and, and, is, and requires like the peer-to-peer -peer part of the network to, to really work well, which is uh, because, there are, because it is a decentralized system, like there are no servers to download the blocks from, right? Like you get blocks and transactions from other hotspots. And so given the way the network is deployed today, which is that, you know, the vast majority of hotspots are on consumer internet connections that are often firewalled or have, you know, some kind of NAT. The connection between all those hotspots to get blocks and transactions can be really, really hard and be really, really slow. And so you sometimes see people in the community with like, you know, I've had my hotspot, it keeps sinking, you know, like it can never catch up. And, and that's why, right? Like, because you're getting blocks from like other hotspots on the network and, and that, is, that is unreliable. The idea with the, with the light hotspots is to move away from that, that architecture, which is to say that we no longer think that hotspots should have a complete copy of the blockchain. Like they just don't need it, right? All the hotspots should be concerned with is POC and data credit stuff, right? And so a way to do that and the way that it is being implemented with validators is to put all the syncing and blockchain storage stuff with the validators, right? Like the validator group have the full copy of the blockchain as do, as do other nodes on the network, like our API server and like, you know, anyone else that's, that's running a full node also has, an, also has access to all of this. Hotspots will now, instead of having to sync with the network, will now just do POC things and data credit things. So the validators will run a service or an API effectively that allows the hotspots to ask them for things, right? Like I received a POC packet. What do I like? Where does it go? And you know, the, the hotspots will just deliver that to the to the to the validator group. So the, the net effect there is that 
there won't be any syncing. I think that's the most important thing for, for users to be able to sort of think about. And if you don't have a hotspot, you don't realize what a pain is. But if you do have a hotspot, you've almost certainly experienced it like fall out of sync or fall behind or have some kind of syncing issue. And the main thing that light hotspots will get users is that they no longer have that problem. Like they are immediately synced in terms of how the user experience looks. Every existing hotspot can be turned into a light hotspot with a software update. Certainly our hotspots will behave that way. The rack hotspots, which are using our firmware will behave that way. It will be up to vendors to, to implement that on their own hotspots, right? So if you buy a Bobcat or a Nebra or Curlink or whatever, you know, you'll be dependent on them doing that implementation, but everyone will want to because it creates so much less complexity on the, on the hotspot end. In the longer tail, the, the benefit will be that the hardware required to be a hotspot continues to sort of fall in, in terms of uh, requirements. So today you need, you know, a quad core ARM processor that is like fairly powerful by embedded uh, hardware standards in the form of the Raspberry Pi. In the future, you know, with the light hotspots, you barely need anything, right? Like almost any LoRa gateway with any kind of ARM processor or MIPS or whatever is being used there is going to be good enough, right? And so that will mean that the costs get lower. Uh, it will mean that the supply chain is easier because you won't be dependent on buying pies or, you know, equivalent. You'll be able to use practically anything. So over time, like we would expect hotspots to just keep falling in, in price, you know, Broan just completed a HIP-19 application to be a third-party you know, manufacturer. And I think their hotspot is priced at $89, right? And, and so I, I expect that to just continue, right? Because it, it, it's just going to be cheaper. Like there's not going to be any anything interesting about the hardware that goes in these devices. And so those are the main benefits. Like for the user, you're not going to have syncing. You're not going to have bandwidth consumption. Um, it's just going to work immediately out of the box. You're not going to have to wait hours or days for, for syncing to occur. And I, I think we did really good work there with snapshots to like make that faster. Like the older users on the network probably remember it taking like two weeks or something to like sync in the, in the early days. So I think we did good work there, but you know, you're never going to beat not having to sync, right? Like you just turn the thing on and it just does its job. Uh, and in the future, we'll also allow existing LoRa gateways to easily become hotspots, right? Like there's, there are tens or hundreds of thousands of LoRa gateways that are deployed out in the wild today, like often in private networks, uh, anything, any of those are going to be able to like flip into being, um, Helium hotspots, that's going to have a, a highly valuable long tail effect too. So nothing for consumers to worry about. Like there's no economic benefit for running a light or a, or a heavy hotspot as they are today. You know, a future buying decision shouldn't depend on, you know, will I earn more from one type of hotspot or another? They're both going to be equivalent. I think it's just going to make the supply chain easier and, and the cost lower over time. In terms of communication, how do the light hotspots actually communicate with the validator group? Is there some HTTP endpoint? Is it still peer-to-peer -peer in some way? Or like, how do you ensure that that communication is still decentralized and resistant to censorship? Yeah, there's some implementation questions there that I don't know the perfect answer to. Uh, I know we intend to use something like a gRPC service between uh, the hotspots and, and the validator group, but how the validator group is discovered and, and you know, authenticated by hotspots like that, that I don't, I actually know how that's being implemented yet, but effectively somehow the light hotspot knows where the validators are. There's some way of authenticating that they are real validators, you know, with a real copy of the blockchain and everything else is an outbound, you know, gRPC message from the hotspots. So, you, so, you know, another benefit that I miss is you don't have to worry about port forwarding. You have to worry about UPnP, like you don't have to deal with any of that stuff, right? Because everything is going to be a hotspot talking out to the validator group, uh, which is the way that all internet communication really works and, and doesn't really depend on firewalling as a, as a solution. So yeah, that's just going to, I'm like, I just can't wait for that to happen. It's just exhausting dealing with the current, the current state of things sometimes.
Yeah, it is going to solve so, so many issues, and I can't wait either. The roadmap for light hotspots is looking like the first dependency, right, is that validators need to come live on the mainnet. And then you've outlined a few other steps that need to happen. I don't have them in front of me right now. But essentially, you need a wallet to onboard the light hotspot, just like any other hotspot. But there's not going to be the chance to earn from proof of coverage for a little while. At first, it seems like the conversion that you're talking about where people will be able to take existing Lorewind gateways or maybe just off the shelf hardware, new hardware that they may have bought is going to be limited to packet forwarding. Those devices will be able to earn HNT through transmitting packets, but they will not be able to participate in POC. So what, what are the milestones there? Yeah, so that's exactly right. I mean, so, so right now you can take any compatible gateway, which I think is most of them. Um, and we have a, a GitHub repo called Gateway RS. Um, so it's a very you know simple, lightweight, application that runs on the hotspot on the gateway itself um, but it's very very lightweight like you can run it on almost almost any class of hardware um, and so today you can do that and packets work right like so you don't appear on the map like you don't there's like no you don't appear to exist um, but you can use it to send sensor data to the helium network and if if you know another sensor that wasn't yours came near you they would also be able to use your hotspot to send data to the to the to console or, or wherever you wanted it to go so that's the current state of things the, the next step uh, is to allow those gateways to like add themselves to the blockchain. So that means you appear on the map, the hotspot count goes up, you get paid. There's a step after that, but that's the next step is that you you become a sort of member of the network in in, in a way, still using the same architecture. Um, we're going to add support in the CLI for like how that all works for the for the wallet CLI. The step after that is is sort of an incremental bump where you can now earn data credit rewards, right? So if other sensors come near your hotspot, you now will actually start to earn the mining rewards in the form of data credit earning. Of course, today we expect those to be relatively low, but it's a, it's still an important architectural step because it means you know now those light gateways or light hotspots are now part of sort of the bigger ecosystem. And then you know the milestone after that is to earn HNT for proof of coverage, right? And and that's sort of the most significant step after that, right? Which is that as long as the gateways are HIP19 approved, you know, with the with the existing HIP19 requirements. Uh, those gateways would be able to participate in proof of coverage and and earn the same way that that hotspots earn today. Uh, and then eventually, you know, the final milestone is migrating all hotspots to be, you know, light hotspots. And, and we can't, you know, force the vendors to do that. Like we don't really care. We just don't think there's any benefit to not doing that, right? So we would encourage everyone to do it. It, re it really significantly reduces the, su the support surface area as well. So that's sort of the, the steps of milestones. Like we're excited to get the first one, which is like you can add or 1.5, which is you can add the light hotspot to the network. I've just been surprised, like that's a, that's a one that surprised me a little in how in demand it was, even though there's no real like earning potential for that step. Like people want to be on the map and they want to like indicate their support and, and indicate their coverage, which is awesome. I, I just, you know, I thought people were self more selfish than that. So it's been awesome to see that that people want to do that, e even if there's no no earning potential there. So that's the next step that we're working towards now. They do all depend on validators. Actually, you know, I don't think that step does actually depend on validators. I think that can be done with the existing construction, uh, and and I think that's what we're what we're working towards. So, but yeah, that, that's the roadmap. And by Q3, we we would hope to have full POC on on light hotspots. Like I think that's the intention. The contingency there, or the or the dependency there, is is really validators for the POC part. You know, like validators has to be live. There's additional work required for validators to be able to support the POC work because today POC is is handled entirely by hotspots, and so a lot of that has to move now to validators. There's needs to be a community discussion about the economics because you know it's like one or two percent of of HNT rewards go to hotspots today for constructing challenges. If they're no longer constructing challenges, like what what should happen to that one or two percent? 
you know, I've heard all sorts of different proposals, like it should just be UBI, just be distributed across all the hotspots equally. It should go to hotspots that have no witnesses. I thought that was an interesting idea that I heard yesterday. Uh, it should go to validators because they're the ones that are doing the construction. You know, so I expect some debate there because today, like if you're a lone wolf hotspot, you know, like one of these that, that has no other hotspots around, the challenge construction reward is the only reward you have. I expect some debate there. So that's another, you know, one of the steps I think the community is going to have to engage in some debate there and decide, you know, what we should do with the economics around POC. But yeah, after that, I, I think we'll be in good shape. But a lot of this is already in progress from an engineering point of view. It's just, you know, there, there are a bunch of dependencies in front of it. Oh boy, I can see that firestorm coming, that community debate over what happens with the uh, one or two percent. I, I mean, I think it, I don't disagree with any of the points of view that, I, that I've heard so far. I mean, they're all valid in, in a way. Uh, even though it's one or two percent and it's diminishing constantly, it's still something, you know, and, and you know, as the as the value of the network goes up, let's say, like those somethings become not not nothing, right? And and so and combined with the supply chain constraints that we have now, it's not quite as easy as just like, you know, add another hotspot in your area. because uh, that's gonna take like six months or something. You know, ideally that timeline is always coming down and I'm optimistic that in the next quarter things will improve significantly. But I am conscious of it. The optimal answer is like, just don't be a lone wolf, you know, just buy another hotspot or convince someone near you to buy another hotspot. But I'm aware that that's not always possible either financially or or due to the logistics right now. I, I thought the one of like, you know, rewarding it to lone wolf specifically was actually really interesting. You know, like hotspots that have no other POC activity. Do you want to reward people for having no POC activity? Like probably not. Opens up a whole bunch of questions and angles for attack, but uh, it's an interesting one nonetheless. And so that that's going to be uh, a fun debate. Thank you so much for tuning into the hotspot. If you love our content and want to support us even more, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving your honest review. This will help the podcast reach more people and educate them about the Helium Network.